Hello there, welcome back to my channel. My name is Clay, and on this channel I talk a lot about psychology, personality, a little bit of philosophy, and topics surrounding beliefs naturally kind of leak their way into a lot of the things I talk about. And about four months ago, I made a video called Why I Left Christianity. So if you haven't watched that, feel free to go check that out. So why did I make that video? I mean, I knew at the time I was kind of opening myself up to a lot of criticism, and I was right. Over 1,100 comments. And then on top of that, I've received a lot of messages. Mainly Instagram, I've received a lot of messages from Christians, from people who were Christians and have left, and then on top of that, I've received messages from all types of other religions, like lots of Muslims, Jehovah's Witness. And then I've also received messages from all these other people who seem to have these very custom beliefs, very spiritual people. So over the last four months, I've spent a lot of time reading these messages. I mean, sometimes people send me like an eight paragraph. It happens to be something that I'm interested in, so I'll usually read it. And many of the comments and messages that I've received have been very positive very encouraging. Even if people disagree with me, I really appreciate when somebody can still voice their disagreement and voice their arguments in like an objective way that doesn't come across as sort of as an attack or these sort of passive aggressive comments. Really hate passive aggressive behavior. If you didn't know, if you're a regular viewer, then you're probably gonna know I hate passive aggressiveness. I hate manipulation, all those things. And unfortunately, it seems like a lot of the communication surrounding these belief-based issues have a lot of that built in. So even though I've received lots of positive comments and messages, I've received a lot of negative ones as well. So on YouTube, I think what YouTube does is, it, because it has the word Christianity in the title, it'll just show it to people who might be interested in Christianity. And these people come on and say all kinds of stuff. Some of them are a little mean, some of them are disrespectful. I can tell that a lot of people actually haven't watched the video. Like they just didn't watch it before they even started commenting. Um, some people come on there and just start commenting Bible verses. Um, I'm not really sure what the point of that is. It's like I've made a number of points and arguments in that video. Feel free to counter my arguments and we can have a discussion. Um, but it's just, I find it a little funny when people just post Bible stuff, scripture. Um, I have a lot of Muslims commenting on the videos as well, trying to convince me to try out Islam. So the end result of this has been very interesting to me. I've never had so many discussions with so many different people before. And what I've been noticing is that lately I've been getting a little tired of it. So people start messaging me and I'm like, I've heard this argument many times. And the reality is, is that at this point, I'm starting to see some trends with what people say to me. And a lot of it is becoming very unoriginal to me. And I find myself like, oh, I've already had this discussion twice this week. Do I really wanna have it again for a third time? Because the thing about beliefs, as I've talked about in other videos, is it's very rare that you can actually change somebody's beliefs. Beliefs aren't formed based on objective things. It's not like, do I have milk in the fridge? That's based upon a very factual, objective thing. You can open the fridge, see if you have milk. If you don't, you no longer believe you have milk in the fridge. Religious beliefs, faith-based beliefs, they're not like that. Most people, there's really nothing that I could say. There's no evidence that I could provide. There's no lack of evidence. They 
could find in their own arguments that would convince them to stop believing. But so lately I'm just, I'm feeling like, is there a point to me having these discussions over and over and over, saying the same things over and over and over, countering the same arguments over and over and over? And what I'm noticing is that I'm becoming less and less patient. <laughs> so, you know, the first few people that responded with a particular argument, I spent a lot of time trying to go through it and educate them on this. But then by the 10th time that I've heard that argument, I'm just like, ah, I'll write two sentences back. And I think I'm starting to sound a little more jaded to these people. So the point of this video today is to take all these messages, all these comments I've received over the last four months and try to kind of categorize them a bit. And what I've noticed is that there's not that many arguments that people present. The ironic thing about a lot of these points I'm gonna talk about today is I've noticed that people actually think they're being quite original when they present these things to me. They think that maybe I've never heard this before and this is gonna be the one thing that's gonna convince me and convert me back to Christianity. I mean, I'm not saying it can't happen, but I would be really surprised at this point if somebody could even present a piece of evidence or an argument or a point that I really haven't heard before because I've done so much research on this topic. So I wanted to make a video today and go through each of these points, these things that people present to me. And hopefully this will kind of help clarify the main arguments that you might hear. But I also want to make this video for the Christians. I don't want to come across as critical or judgmental of your belief. I actually really think as a basic human freedom, you should have the right to believe whatever you want. You should have the right to do whatever you want. If I had one main goal or point in life, it would just be like freedom. I just want people to experience freedom. And so if you want to believe that, just go ahead. Like I, I want to support you in that. Life is a journey. We all believe different things at different times. We're working towards things. And every belief, every stage is an appropriate part of that journey. Could I even do this video today if I hadn't been through all that I've been through? I mean, the answer is no, right? So that being said, if you're the type of person who's actually watching this video, I want to help educate you on what a good argument is. So I've done videos before on logical fallacies, things like that. Like, what makes an argument valid. If you are a Christian, a Muslim, whatever, I would like to see people using good arguments to defend their faith and not presenting bad arguments and not using logical fallacies to get their points across. As soon as you use a logical fallacy with me, I'm going to immediately disregard your argument. I mean, that's the reality. So as soon as I see that, I know that the argument isn't valid. I know that you haven't done your research. I know that you haven't really thought about it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be using that logical fallacy. I know that maybe you don't even know what a logical argument is. I know that you don't understand what a premise and a conclusion really means if you're using a logical fallacy. So if you are a Christian, if you are a Muslim, if you're any type of believer, then I hope this video can help you realize how I view a number of these arguments and the logical fallacies that I see in them. And I would em employ you, implore, and I would encourage you to kind of take this to heart and try to build your beliefs around better arguments, better evidence. You know, maybe don't use appeal to ignorance fallacies as you're explaining your faith. If you can find other ways that don't use logical fallacies, I think that you're gonna be on much more solid ground and I think people are going to listen to you more and you're going to be more credible. 
So to start things off, I want to explain what an appeal to ignorance fallacy is, because you'll notice this popping up in a number of the arguments that I present here. Appeal to ignorance fallacy seems to be the most popular fallacy that I see. So you may already know what this is, or maybe you've watched my logical fallacy video and you remember the word appeal to ignorance. But an appeal to ignorance fallacy is anytime you come to a conclusion because you don't have any other explanation. So it's sort of like saying, I can't really explain this. I don't know why this happened. So I'm just gonna pick my favorite possibility and treat that as true. So one way that this fallacy pops up a lot is when somebody uses the phrase, well, how else do you explain that? And then they look at you, and if you don't have a valid explanation for whatever this problem is they're trying to solve, you know, they almost take that as proof that they are right because there is no other reasonable explanation that therefore their assumption must be true. So what's a good example of an appeal to ignorance fallacy? Let's say you're down by the lake, the water's glass calm. There's no wind, there's no boats. It's basically a, an empty, calm lake. And then all of a sudden you see this wave coming across the water. And you're like, where in the world did that wave come from? And at that point, you make an assumption about what it must be based on your beliefs. Let's say you actually believe that there's a sea monster that lives in this lake. You now go, that was the sea monster. And then you go and explain this to other people and you're like, well, how else do you explain it? There's this huge wave in the lake. And so as you can see that, that line, well, how else do you explain it, came up. And the point is, it's okay to say that you don't know. Like you could say, I don't know where that wave came from. And so this story is actually a true story. Actually, this happened to me. I grew up on the lake in Kelowna, BC. There's a lake called Okanagan Lake. And there's this legendary sea monster that supposedly lives here called Ogopogo, sort of like the Loch Ness Monster. So when I was in high school, I was sitting there exactly like that. And I saw this weird wave in the middle of the lake. And it, I watched it as it just came to shore. And I was like, where did that wave come from? And a lot of people, if they would have saw that, they would have just said, see, the Ogopogo's real. If you actually dive into other explanations, there's, there's actual geological explanations. Um, like sometimes in lakes, there's underground springs and like warm water will shoot up. And, maybe some, and it's very silty on the bottom of the lake, so it might shoot up a bunch of black silt and it kind of creates this wave and then that wave will propagate towards the shore. Um, there's other explanations as well. But the point is, if you don't know, and there is, let's say, a few different possibilities, it's a logical fallacy if you just jump on one of those things and assume it's true and just throw out the other possibilities. So what's another quick example that you might see in religion? The universe. Like, let's say you look at the universe and say, well, the universe just seems far too complex to have come about naturally. Therefore, God created it. So that's an example of an appeal to ignorance fallacy because the, the, the reality is, is that you don't know how the universe came about. None of us do. You know, people come up with theories. Well, there's this big bang that kind of, the universe kind of came into existence. But there's still more questions that come out of that. Well, you know, where did the big bang come from? What was before this big bang? The universe is expanding, but what, what, what happened at the beginning when it was this like infinitely dense piece of material that expanded out. The point is, is that nobody really knows how the universe was created. There's all these different theories and every religion has a different version of that theory. So just because there is no explanation, it doesn't mean that you can now pick one of the versions and assume that it is true. And 
this goes a little further. Even if you could prove that there was a creator, let's say that you could, let's just assume that for a second, to now jump over this chasm to naming that particular creator based on that, to say, well, obviously there's a God here, therefore Jesus, or therefore Allah, or you know, therefore Vishnu. That's an even more serious logical fallacy because you're taking this giant leap to, the, to a conclusion that really there's just no proof at that point that any of those particular named gods created the universe. So you'll see this a lot in really minor ways. Like people will say, well, I prayed and I got better, therefore God healed me. Or let's say my brother prayed for a job. He just wasn't getting a job. He prayed for a job and then he got a job. All these are examples of appeal to ignorance fallacies because that conclusion doesn't logically follow from the premise. There are other explanations of why he got a job. Maybe he just got a job and maybe it was a coincidence. Maybe he finally got that opportunity that he needed. I find a good rule of thumb to detecting an appeal to ignorance fallacy is if you kind of look at it in reverse. So I prayed for a job and then I got a job. Therefore, God gave me the job. That's the argument. So if you say, okay, well, what if you didn't pray for a job? Does that mean you will never get a job? And then people go, well, no, I'd probably get a job. And that's the point, is that there's other ways to get jobs and there's other reasons to get jobs. And sometimes coincidences happen. And sometimes it might be extremely coincidental. And it almost starts to suggest that there's something going on here. Well, I prayed for this extremely unlikely thing and then it happened. Therefore, can I assume that the prayer caused it? I would say you can't assume it. But you could keep it in the back of your mind as, you know, something interesting might be happening there. And that's really how all theories start. You're like, hmm, there's something weird going on here. I'm going I'm to further investigate this and maybe test this a little more. I think if Christians actually looked at their appeal to ignorance fallacies that way and presented them that way, that, hey, there's something weird going on here, and I think that it might suggest this, I'm not really sure, I would have no problem with it. I think the problem that I have with a lot of appeal to ignorance fallacies is when they're presented in this way that I'm an idiot if I don't believe it. It's like, I prayed for a job and I got a job. What do you say about that? And I'm like, well, there's, you know, there's other explanations. And then they, and then they get upset. They might start getting passive aggressive with me. They might, you know, questioning my intelligence. I mean, that happens all the time. They're like, oh, you think you're so smart. I had one pastor, actually. He was so offended that I was starting to talk about this stuff. But it, it, he actually said this to me. He's like, who are you to challenge all the greatest thinkers of Christianity over the, the millennia, right? Who are you? You think you can come up with an original idea? And I remember just after he said that, I was just like, you're the reason why I don't want to hang out with Christians, to be honest. Like, and that's sort of an unfortunate truth about a lot of these things. A lot of the worst comments I receive on my YouTube channel are from Christians. I find that Muslims are actually quite respectful in many cases. I'm not sure why Christians get so mean and nasty all the time. I, I don't know, I, I find it very, it's a huge turnoff. And in many ways, I'm getting less patient with those types of people. When I first made the video four months ago, I was very, quite patient with people. And now it's just like, 
you know, if you're going to get passive aggressive, if you're going to get nasty, like you're getting muted off my channel. So on that video, I've muted a lot of people. Like if you actually read through the comments, you'll see lots of ones that are arguing with me and maybe saying slightly disrespectful things and people saying respectful things. But there's been some really nasty ones that I've had to delete. YouTube has this feature where you can actually mute somebody. I think that means that they can still view your video and they might even be able to comment. They, they can comment, but nobody sees the comment. So I've had to do that to a lot of people that are just like on like a war path with me because of that video. So let's jump into the first argument and probably the most popular one that I get. So I ask people, why are you a Christian? What evidence do you have? Why did you choose to believe this particular thing instead of, you know, all the other choices? Why did you choose Christianity over Islam? Why, why did you choose it over Hinduism or any, anything? I mean, if you actually look at history, they estimate up to a thousand different gods or religions, maybe not gods, a thousand different religions over the course of human history. So why did you choose yours over all the others? Is, is a very common question that I'll ask people. So I get messages all the time from people saying they've had various experiences and that's why they believe. So I had this religious experience or this spiritual experience this time. I had um, this prayer answered. Um, it seems quite common for people to have spiritual experiences or they have this personal relationship, as they call it, with whatever God they happen to believe in. And the thing about it is, is that I don't disagree with people when they say this. I actually do believe that people are having spiritual experiences or what they believe to be spiritual experiences because it's, it's very common amongst humans. So where I start to get a little suspicious with this particular argument is that I've heard from people of all different religions and it seems like all the religions have similar experiences. And because all these religions contradict each other in various ways, they can't all be true. Like, you know, Catholics and Christians, I mean, you can kind of be a Christian and a Catholic, I know, but they, you know, they believe different things. Like, for example, I know one Catholic, and she said that Mother Mary, in her room one night, Mother Mary came to her. She was in this really bad place. She felt this female presence, female energy. It was definitely Mother Mary. And Mother Mary came to comfort her and throughout the night kind of like nurtured her and in the end it was like this amazing experience for her you know and it was definitely mother mary so when it comes to like protestants or you know christians i guess you've got catholics and protestants they don't really believe that you can pray to mother mary and mother mary is just a human and she wouldn't have the power to come down and visit you so they would say in their own spiritual experiences, they would say it's the Holy Spirit that is coming to visit you or provide this experience for you. And so all the other religions out there also experience similar things. So I'm, it's become a bit of a hobby for me is when I find somebody who has a spiritual experience and it's sort of a, a personal experience, right? I ask them about it and I say, what was it like? What, what, tell me specifically what happened. I don't want to sound like a downer, but more often than not, the experiences are a little underwhelming. I, when I was a Christian, had similar experiences. Like I said, I don't, in the video, if you watch my, the past video, I was really involved in the worship side of church. So I played in all these different worship bands. And that was sort of a big part of what I was doing. And I felt that. 
during worship. So really, my root question of all these personal experiences is, even if you had a personal experience, how do you know what the cause of that experience really is? So I've got one friend who says Mother Mary visited her. I've got another friend that says the Holy Spirit visited him. And then, you know, I talked to a Muslim one time and he was visited by the prophet. You've got three people here telling me very similar stories, but they've, they've changed the names, right? Mother Mary, the prophet, Holy Spirit. How do I know which one is telling the truth? Maybe they're all telling the truth. That's sort of my conclusion, right? Maybe they're all telling the truth, and maybe they're just all confused about what the source of that experience really is. So at its root, this is an appeal to ignorance fallacy. It's like, I had this experience, and how else do you explain it? It must have been God. But when you look, there, there are other possibilities here, and we, we can't really say definitively which possibility it was. So really quickly, I want to talk about Sam Harris's research because it kind of relates directly into this topic. And as soon as I say Sam Harris, certain people might get turned off because he's a pretty famous atheist. So I would encourage you just to be impartial for a moment and listen to me if the, the name Sam Harris kind of turns you off. Um, but Sam Harris is a neuroscientist, and he very much believes in the idea of sort of these spiritual experiences. And his main interest of research is really diving in and trying to figure out what are these experiences. And what he's noticed is that there are natural ways to trigger a lot of these same experiences. So, for example, you can take psilocybin, which is in mushrooms, um, or LSD. So there's a whole bunch of research going on these days with psilocybin and LSD and how it affects the brain. Because for years, these drugs were extremely illegal, even illegal for research, which is kind of a shame because they say that we've lost like 50 to 60 years of research on a lot of these compounds and we don't even really understand them because they were made so illegal. So like places like John Hopkins now, really respected, they're doing research on these compounds to try to find out what's going on. And the interesting thing is, when people take these compounds, it is triggering these religious experiences, these spiritual experiences. And um, it's being used commonly for depression now, and it's actually showing some really interesting results. Like people, a study just came out of John Hopkins, um, that basically they had all these people that were treatment-resistant depression, took some psilocybin in this sort of controlled environment with a psychologist present and all that. And like a month later, like half of them, these are people that literally couldn't take drugs to get rid of their depression. Half of them had no signs of depression anymore. So it's really interesting what's going on with these compounds. As an aside though, the experiences that people are having on these compounds really mimic a spiritual experience. So you have to ask the question, right? Well, this compound interacts with our brain, the neurons, our neurotransmitters in a very specific way that creates this sort of weird alternate state where people feel like they can, they're one, it's a very common thing that people feel like they're one with the earth. I, I've read a number of accounts, it's sort of something I've been interested in lately. They feel connected to things, connected to the universe, connected to other people. 
So it seems to me that it's like people are ex basically having natural spiritual experiences with these compounds. If you then go and read accounts of people having religious experiences, faith-based experiences, or people that have certain experiences during deep meditative states, it starts to sound a little similar. So he's basically asking the question, what if these spiritual religious experiences are sort of hardwired into our brain? And there's various circumstances, various preconditions that can cause our brains to go into these states. And then what's happening is various people, they might achieve these states naturally. They might achieve them through like artificial means, through drugs. But the end result is this spiritual experience. So yes, when my friend says that she had Mother Mary come and visit her and she had this experience, when somebody else I know says that he broke down in the shower one evening and that's when he became a Christian and had this massive, overwhelming emotional response in the shower because of the Holy Spirit, do I believe that it happened? And the answer is yes. I think that our minds are so infinitely complex and our emotional state and our we, we suppress things and it comes out at other times and we have this whole subconscious part to our brains and all this mystery. The way I look at it is that we don't really know why these things are happening. And so to assume it is now this particular God or this particular deity or this particular person that is causing that experience, that's where I feel like it's not really that substantiated. Feel free to hope it's that or wonder if it's that or have a theory it's that. But when somebody comes along and says it was definitely Mother Mary, that's where I go, hmm, that sounds to me like an appeal to ignorance fallacy. One last thing about personal experience. You know, there's all kinds of studies out there that show how malleable our experiences are. There's things like cognitive bias and how we notice things that are important to us and we just disregard or throw things out that don't matter. We're doing that all day long. Data's coming in and we're going, yep, I like that, I like that, no, I don't need that, no, I don't need that. And it's amazing, we as humans, really how subjective our experience is and we're kind of, we're just creating these subjective realities. So there's all kinds of psychological studies that prove this. They, they do things like, change people's memories just by suggesting certain things. Like they actually show somebody something and then later through the questions, they'll suggest new data that wasn't really part of it. And they'll actually get people remembering different things than, than actually happened. I mean, it's well documented. The reality is, is that people are highly unreliable. Our experiences, I mean, who knows what's going on? And this is sort of one of the problems that I have with the Bible itself, that it wasn't written down. Jesus' words weren't written down for decades after he said them. How do I know? I'm trusting the personal experience of all these people that have sort of passed his words down until 50 years later when it's finally written down. To me, that's not reliable. So don't get me wrong. Personal experience is a great way to sort of come... It's like part of the intuition process. It's part of the discovering things and trying to discover the truth. But personal experience alone doesn't conclude truth, in my opinion. 
unless it is something that is repeatable and verifiable. So if I can go have the same experience again and again and I can repeat the conditions and then I can tell other people how to repeat those conditions and create those experiences, like taking psilocybin. So if you take psilocybin, you can end up with a personal experience, right? So to me, that's repeatable and verifiable. But a lot of the personal experiences that people send me don't seem like that. They seem very wishy-washy. And in the end, it just causes me to have to trust their word for it. And if I had to have a motto lately, it's that I'm not just going to trust people to tell me stuff. Because the reality is, is I've got a Muslim, a Christian, and a Jehovah's Witness all telling me slightly different things. And I say to all of them, how can I trust you? Give me something real. Personal experience alone isn't enough because you know, the Muslims tell me the same thing as the Jehovah's Witness. How do I know? Personal experience alone isn't enough to distinguish between these two choices. You need something real, something tangible in order to pick between the two. How do I know who's telling the truth? They, they both think they're telling the truth. I know that. Which is one reason why I just think that personal experience isn't as reliable as people want it to be. So the next argument that I hear all the time involves something I'm calling shifting the burden of proof. And the basis of this is if you make a claim, any claim, I ate waffles for breakfast, or it could be more extreme, fairies exist. If I make a claim, it is my responsibility to provide evidence and prove that claim. If I say that fairies exist, it is not your responsibility to disprove my claim. And why is that? Because most of these claims, most of these beliefs are non-falsifiable. And what that means is it's impossible to disprove most beliefs. If I say I ate waffles for breakfast and then I cleaned up and there's no evidence of these waffles existing anymore, how can you as a person disprove that I ate those waffles? Or what if I said I ate waffles three months ago on you know, Monday the 8th. That's a claim. It would be my responsibility if I wanted to prove that was 100% accurate, like in a court. How can I prove that I ate waffles? I would have to maybe pull out some pictures. But the idea is it's my responsibility to provide proof. It is not your responsibility to disprove that I had waffles. So this pops up all the time in these various religious discussions. People will say, well, you know, do you disprove God then? You can't prove that God doesn't exist. And my response lately is always, it's not my job to disprove it. It's a non-falsifiable belief. I can't go into the heavens and see, look at heaven doesn't exist because I'm up here. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. I can't disprove that. I can't disprove that Santa doesn't exist. And if you disagree with me on that, think about all the things that you don't have to disprove. You don't have to disprove that aliens exist. You don't have to disprove that Bigfoot exists. If somebody's making a claim that aliens exist, then let's see your evidence and we'll analyze your evidence and see if it's valid. If it's not valid, then don't cry about it and say that I have to now disprove this ridiculous claim. If you can't provide good enough evidence to convince me something is true, I have the right to say, I'm not convinced. I don't have to disprove it in order to be not convinced that your claim is accurate. So the next argument that I hear quite a bit, and I actually received one very long email about this. 
Um, I've had other people tell it to me in various ways as well. But it can really be, it was funny, this, there was like a, this 10 paragraph email could really be summed down into this really specific argument. And it is the argument from usefulness, as I'm calling it. And what does that mean? It basically says that because religion or because this belief is useful in some way, that it is therefore true. So what are some examples? I had one friend say that you know, becoming a Christian pretty much erased his depression. And now he has all this joy and happiness in his life. So therefore, it must be true, right? But other people say that their beliefs give them meaning and purpose in life. You know, therefore, it is true. Because if it wasn't true, it wouldn't give them meaning and purpose. So this argument is fairly easy to dismantle. Because if you actually look at the research, people have actually done studies on this. People that have religious beliefs are generally happier. They're more secure with their lives. They have less existential questions, less ex existential dread. Their, their fear of death is less because, generally speaking, they you know, ha they know where they're going. In general, they say they have a greater purpose and meaning in life as well. It's like they fit into this system, this cosmic order, and they sort of know what they're doing. Usually when I say that to people, they say, see, there's something to it. And then I say, but the reality is, is those statistics are true independent of what particular religion you believe in. So religion as a whole, whether you're a Muslim or you're a Christian, whether you're, you know, Hare Krishna, generally speaking, you are happier. So if this was true, and you could actually use this as an argument, let, let's say only Christians were happier. You know, then we could be like, hmm, there's something going on here with the Christians, but it's just not what you can observe. Generally speaking, Anybody with beliefs is happier. So I've done videos on this particular one before, and I had this analogy of a three-legged table. People want a four-legged table. And you can think of the legs on a table as the answers that we all seek. So we all want to know, like, what, why am I here? What is the meaning of life? Like, what is this life that we're living? What is the purpose? Like, what happens to me when I die? And if you can slot in firm answers. It's like a leg on your table. And now your table is very stable and you can kind of build your life upon this stable foundation because all those sort of hard questions are answered. And it's one of the things if you go through where you actually leave your faith. So I left Christianity because I just, I just couldn't find good enough evidence that it was true. And that's really what it comes down to. People accuse me of all kinds of different reasons of why I left. But in the end, what is the reason? I couldn't find good enough evidence that it's true. Hundreds of thousands or hundreds of millions of people all believing in one thing, that's not a reason. What if only one person believed it? Would that make it less true or more true? The reality is, when I left Christianity, I ripped a couple legs off my table, and in, I got stressed out. I was fairly depressed. I kind of went into an ex existential crisis. I was essentially had a one-legged table. I didn't know the answers to all these things that I had grown up feeling very secure about. Suddenly, I didn't know the point of, of life. I, I became a bit of a nihilist for a while which if you don't know what that is, is just a person who feels like there is no meaning. There, there's no purpose to any of this. This, this. this whole thing is a giant joke, and there's just no point to it all. And 
nihilism is sort of rooted in this feeling like I, I sh maybe shouldn't even continue. Maybe I should just kill myself. So, I mean, I went through that. And the reality is, is that religion, beliefs, is very useful and guaranteed if you are a member of one of these groups, you will be happier, you will be more secure in your foundation, you, your existential questions in general are more answered. I'm sure you still have some. The real question that I have to ask is, even if you knew you were going to be happier believing something that was false, would you do it? See, for me, I can't do that. I'm not going to believe in something just because I know it might make me happier. Maybe other people can. But this whole argument from usefulness is wrapped up in that. This thing made me happier, therefore it's true. It, it essentially is another appeal to ignorance fallacy. It's like, well, how else do you explain why I'm so happy? And the reality is, I know very happy atheists. I know very happy Buddhists. I know very peaceful Hindus. And to be honest, I know some miserable Christians. I know some nasty Christians, and I got proof of it And all the people I've had to block off my video, all the nasty messages I've gotten. That's not to say all of them are. I've encountered lots of nice Christians too. The point of me saying this is, though, is that it's, it's obvious that Christians aren't happier and more peaceful and more purposeful than Muslims. And you could almost argue that it seems to me like Muslims almost have a greater sense of that than even Christians do. So what I'm trying to say is the whole argument from usefulness has a completely natural explanation and it does not prove that God exists. And it especially doesn't prove that your particular flavor of God exists. So the next argument I'm gonna talk about is examples of prayer as a reason why the religion is true or the beliefs are true. So whenever somebody says that they have this really good example of prayer working, I always jump on the opportunity to ask for more details. So I'm starting to recognize a pattern when I ask people for their, their prayer examples at this point, praying for healing, praying for things to happen, is that every single time I've been quite sorely disappointed with what they say. I think at my core, I would love prayer to be real. Like, if somebody prayed for an actual miracle. I think my main problem with most answered prayers is that there's other natural ways that thing can happen. It's like, even if you had, let's say, cancer, and the cancer went into remission, non-Christian cancer goes into remission sometimes. So just because you prayed for cancer and it went into remission, does that prove that God healed you? It doesn't because there's natural ways to explain that. If I pray that my cold goes away and it goes away, well, everybody's cold goes away. So does it mean anything when somebody prays for it and it goes away anyway? My main question to people that claim that prayer works is, why don't we see things that are real miracles? If God actually is all-powerful and he has the power to do whatever he wants, omnipresent, why don't we see some real miracles? The other thing is, if prayer was real, I think there would be statistics to prove it works. Christian cancer would go into remission more often than non-Christian cancer. You know, Christians would get into less car accidents than non-Christians. I remember when I used to get in the car when I was young, my mom would pray a hedge of protection around the car, things like that. 
So, I mean, if Christians are in general more protected, how come Christians aren't getting into less car accidents? You know, it's interesting. They've actually done studies on prayer and healing. They'll get these intercessory prayer groups. So intercessory prayer just means you're praying on behalf of somebody else. So there'll be a whole bunch of people like recovering from surgery in these studies. And, you know, they'll get a, a group of people that have nobody praying for them. And then they'll get a group of people recovering from surgery that have some hardcore prayer warriors praying for that group. And there's a number of studies like this. The reality is, is that there's no difference if you're prayed for. And some studies suggest that there is a little bit of a difference. Um, actually, one study I read suggested the people who got prayed for were actually worse off. There was one other study I read where, you know, they were a little better off. And I think a lot of it comes down to whether the people know they're being prayed for, because there's placebo. So if you know you're being prayed for, it's very possible that you might get better just from the fact that you know you're being prayed for. I mean, they've done all kinds of studies with placebo. People, you know, they have these complicated medical conditions. They give them sugar pills and then they, so they give half the group sugar pills. They give the other half, you know, the actual medication and the people with sugar pills get better just like the people on the medication. It, it's, it's amazing, right? The, the power of the mind, the power of the brain. It's like we actually have the ability to, he, to heal our own bodies. It's quite amazing to me. But the point of the matter is, is in double-blind studies where people don't know if they're being prayed for, there's, there's no evidence that prayer works. And so I ask, if prayer actually works for these little things, why don't we see some evidence for it? So I would say every single time that I've asked people this question, all the people I've asked about their examples of prayer working, I would say every single time is either cognitive bias or coincidence or a mixture between those two things. So confirmation bias is one of the types of cognitive bias. So what's an example of confirmation bias, which is a type of cognitive bias that really comes into play with this? Let's say you're car shopping and you really like Honda Civics. And now you're thinking about buying a Honda Civic. You're, you're thinking about it. You're kind of in that mode of um, purchasing. And you really just start to notice, wow, look at all the Honda Civics everywhere. You're driving around. You see Honda Civics everywhere. And you start to wonder, wow, there's just a lot more Honda Civics out these days than there used to be. That's an example of confirmation bias. It basically says that you only really notice the things that are within your sphere, within your subjective reality. And you're, you got Honda Civics on the brain, so you're seeing them everywhere. But before, you know, you don't have Honda Civics on the brain. Every time you see a Honda Civic, it just doesn't even register with you, and the memory is just tossed. So it's a well-documented fact that confirmation bias exists. And I have to believe, and you know, I think I'm guilty of this because I used to pray a lot. I used to pray continually throughout the day. The reality is, is that let's say you have a prayer get answered. Let's, let's say it's even unlikely, Right? You're praying for a really specific job and you get it. And it's like, wow, that's a miracle. I never would have got that job without God. The, the question that I really have is, how many times have you prayed and it didn't come true? I think that most people would have trouble answering that. Like, I think it's possible back in the day, I might have done 50 prayers in a day. And what if I do that for two weeks and then I have one of these prayers come true and confirmation bias tells me that prayer works because I prayed and I got it. Meanwhile, maybe I had 300 other prayers that didn't come true. 
So this is what I mean by confirmation bias. You notice the case that matches your beliefs and you throw out all the other examples. The other thing about coincidence is I have coincidental things happen to me now and I'm not a Christian. So when somebody says, this coincidental thing happened, how else do you explain it? Argument from ignorance again. I say, well, I have coincidental things happen to me and I don't even believe that God is real. So what does that mean? Does that mean God's helping me even when I haven't asked him to? And if that's the case, well, then why do we have to pray? The point is, is that coincidence is a statistical guarantee. That means that we are guaranteed to have coincidences happen to us. Small coincidences constantly. And they say, if you actually look up the math of this, that we're all guaranteed to have something that is just astronomically unlikely happen to us a couple times in our lifetime. You know, like people winning the lottery, very unlikely, but it happens, right? It's a statistical guarantee that somebody wins the lottery. So my overall point with this argument is, if you want to give me examples of prayer working, you know, give me a real example. Like, I prayed that Mount Everest would detach from the Himalayas and plop itself in Kelowna, BC, Canada, where I live. And I wake up in the morning, I prayed for Mount Everest, now I have Mount Everest in my backyard. I mean, if that happened, I'd probably be with you. I'd be like, <laughs> I mean, I might even subject myself to an appeal to ignorance fallacy. Like, there is literally no other way to explain that. And maybe I'd start believing the fact that some other supernatural force actually moved Mount Everest. But the point is, is that that never happens. It's always biological stuff. You know, our, our biology is so complicated. It's constantly self-healing. It's like, what a coincidence that most prayers seem to revolve around biology. You know, if prayer works, why not pray that amputee over there grow a new leg? How come I don't see that happening? You know, people talk about legs lengthening and stuff like that. But if you go on YouTube, every time somebody gives me one of these things, I'll go research it. And that leg lengthening thing is a known trick that people do. You can actually go onto YouTube and you can see how people can do that trick. So, I mean, if God was actually doing miracles and answering prayers, why would he do something that also can be simulated with a trick? Why wouldn't he do something that was beyond explanation? So the next thing I want to talk about is I've noticed this happening. We get into a bit of a factual discussion about evidence. This person's providing their evidence for their claim. I'm providing counter-arguments. And eventually we kind of hit this stalemate where they realize they're out of arguments, they're out of evidence, and then they flip into this mode where they say, well, it's not about facts, it's about faith. And you, you have to have faith in order to fully understand what the belief is. And I actually remember when I was young, I found out that Santa wasn't real. And I told my neighbor, and he said, well... Santa doesn't come to your house because you don't believe in him. 
And this is essentially the same idea. It's because I don't believe in Santa, I won't experience the benefits that people are talking about. I won't get those gifts from Santa because I don't believe in him. And if I want to get those gifts, then I have to believe in it for a time, and then I will get these things. So to me, this is sort of like a care on the stick. You know, you're sitting on the donkey's back with a carrot on a stick, and the donkey's walking towards the carrot. But as, as he gets closer to the carrot, the carrot keeps getting further away. So he's always chasing the carrot, but never gets it. That's what this seems like to me. The, the really ironic thing about this argument is that I was a Christian. I spent th almost 30 years, if you count from when I was really young, maybe 25 years from the time that I first accepted Jesus. I spent 25 years seeking God, praying, reading the Bible, studying, worshiping, and I I never got that carrot. I never fully experienced what you're claiming to say is true. And at that point, the common response is, well, you never were a Christian. I've had a lot of people say that to me. And I always got to shake my head when people say that because they're like, you don't know me. You, you know nothing about me. You know nothing about what I was. So to say that I spent 25 years doing something so wrong that I didn't experience this thing that is supposedly a free gift and easy to get, I don't know. That, to me, seems like manipulation. And that's essentially what a carrot on a stick is. It's a type of manipulation. And I have to ask the question, if there was a God, would he resort to this kind of carrot on a stick mentality for converting people to the belief system? So another thing that is very ironic about this argument is that I get all different religions telling this to me. So let's say I'm sitting here and I, like, I'll post stuff on Instagram sometimes and I'll have literally 40 to 50 people all messaging me. And I, I did it a few weeks ago and I don't even know if I'm going to do it anymore because it was quite exhausting. I sat there for three hours constantly responding to all these different people who were arguing their faiths against me. Uh, lots of Christians, Muslims, Jehovah's Witness. I mean, it's just, it just went on and on. And in the end, I didn't convert or change anybody's mind. This is sort of what, the one thing I've noticed. Is there any point to this? Is there any point to having these discussions? Because I may as well be talking to brick walls. But the point is, is that all these different religions all say the same thing. They say you have to invest in it to experience it and fully understand it. To which I respond, okay, but I've got four different religions all saying this to me right now. How do I know which one to try first? How do I know who's telling the truth? They all claim to have a carrot. They're all dangling it in front of me. They all want me to walk towards their particular carrot, and they all claim that I will get there eventually. But how do I know who's telling the truth here? I mean, four, I've got five people, four of you are lying, or four of you are deceived, or I guess it could be all five. So whenever this comes around, whenever this stalemate happens, my next thing that I say is, why should I choose your religion in the first place? There has to be some reason. Why did you choose your religion? Why did you choose Christianity over becoming a Muslim? The sad fact is that most people don't have answers to this question. Most people are born into a religion. And what does that really tell you? 
it kind of tells me if someone's been born into a religion, they didn't choose it for themselves, and therefore they probably aren't reliable in why they chose it. So I've actually come to the realization that the only people I can really trust at this point for that question is somebody who was raised in one religion, and at some other point in their life, they made a conscious decision to switch to another religion. And they actually went through that whole shaming thing as they left their previous religion. And now that I've been through it, like you'd be surprised what happens when you leave a religion. All of a sudden, everybody is super suspicious of you. You lose a lot of your friends. Those relationships that, were, that felt easy and open now are very guarded. And it's kind of sad because I like having these kinds of discussions and I am not fearful at all. I, talk to me about anything that I believe. I would gladly have that discussion. But what I've noticed is that a lot of my friends, or past friends, I should say, they're very guarded about it. They don't want to talk about it. Um, there's various techniques they use to avoid talking about it. But to me, the reason why they avoid talking about it is because they don't have the answers, and they don't even know why they believe what they believe. If they knew why, they would be happy to talk about it. So the reality is, is people say it's not about logic and facts, it's about faith. It's, it's a nonsense argument because you must have used something to pick it in the first place. And it's sort of like that thing. I have five choices here. I have five paths in the woods. In, in, in reality, I probably have more like a hundred, really, if I, all the different religions. So I had to choose one out of a hundred. Let's just say it's five. I have five in front of me. Which one do I pick? I can't walk down each path for 10 years to figure out who has the truth. Statistically speaking, you are wrong. Even if you believe in God, there's so many different flavors and choices of God. Statistically speaking, let's say there's 100 different ones right now. You've got a 1 in 100 chance that you happen to have been born into the correct one. Do you really feel comfortable in that 1% chance that you're right? The reality is, is there has to be something outside of the systems that indicate that one is more true than the other. And so this is what I give people the opportunity to answer. And more often than not, I am sorely disappointed in what people have to say. Because really, it seems like from my perspective, like there generally is no real reason why people believe what they believe. All right, so the next argument that I hear a lot, it's not really an argument at all. It's just sort of a response. I will ask a very direct question. Somebody says a bunch of stuff first. I will ask a very pointed, direct question that they can choose to answer, or I will point out a, a flaw in their reasoning or their argument, and I will give them a, a, a chance to respond. So I'm going to call this response is sort of like rhetoric, or almost like a red herring fallacy. And it basically goes like this. Instead of responding to my question, or even responding to anything I've said, they just start talking and using all this emotional language and talking all around the issue. And I've noticed if they talk long enough, it, it almost becomes a bit like a sermon. And it's, it's very emotionally based. And it's, it's, it's effective is the reality. And if somebody is really skilled at delivering rhetoric, 
I mean, if you go, politicians are amazing at this. They can essentially stand up there and rile up a crowd, right? And, and why is that? It's not because they're delivering, you know, reasoning and facts and logic. They're using all this emotional language that they know is going to trigger people into the type of action that they want. So I get these kind of comments and messages all the time. They're like, God loves you. He sent his only son to die for you. And he did this. And it's just like, la, la, la. And he said this in his word. And it just goes on and on and on. And there'll be five, six paragraphs of this. And in the end, I'll be like, uh, did you see the question that I had asked you, though? That literally has nothing to do with the question. And then they will respond with another five paragraphs that doesn't answer the question again. And it's almost like nobody wants to talk about this stuff. So in church, they really don't focus on these kinds of things. So in reality, nobody's really prepared to answer these questions. And that's sort of my general observation about it. So the next one I'm going to talk about is something I've probably already mentioned, but I'm just going to clarify it into its own point. And this is when somebody argues for the existence of God and then at the very end, after they think they've proved the existence of God, jump over to this conclusion that their particular name or flavor of God is true. This is one that I find quite curious. And I almost feel like I have an analogy for this at this point. So they start at, in the valley and they climb up the mountain and they're, they're proving the existence of God and they're using all these things. They're looking around at the world and the universe and they're trying to use science. That's the really ironic thing here. So they get to the top of this, this peak and they say, I've proved the existence of God. And then at the top of that peak, there's this giant chasm. And on the other side is the particular God that they believe in. That could be, you know, Allah or Jehovah or Jesus or Vishnu or Thor or whoever. And then instead of using all this reasoning that they use to get to the top of the mountain, they just happily jump over the chasm and land at Jesus. The reality is, even if you could prove that the universe or the world was created, which doesn't seem like you can, the point is, even if you knew that somebody created the universe, let's just say that for a second, how do you then know who created it? It's obvious that there's no way to really know. And this sort of goes back to another problem I have with all the various religions. It's always this revelation that's been given to somebody at some point, you know, some guy in a cave or Moses on the top of the mountain or Joseph Smith and he's got special glasses on and now he understands and writes some stuff down. And in the end, you end up with these sacred religious texts written by very you know, one person or maybe a very specific group of people, right? And I have to ask the question, if God was real, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he give the same message to everybody? Why wouldn't he drop the equivalent of leaflets from the sky? Everybody gets a copy. Why is it always this one guy in a cave somewhere? You know, if it was true, why wouldn't the Bible, I mean, this, this would prove the Bible was true. Let's say there's a, a version in Israel that they dug up and you got some original scrolls. What about if in ancient China, they dug up some scrolls and the exact same message was given to those people at that time. The, the point is, is that all of these religious texts, they're just, there's no proof that they're real. There's no proof that they're anything more than just written by people. 
Um, yeah, I don't really know what to say about it, but, you know, it'd be nice if there was some way to prove it, but there doesn't seem to be. All right, so the next one seems to be a popular argument, even though I have no idea why it is. And this is that Christians quite often will try to prove Christianity by using the Bible. And so I will get these messages or these comments and it's like, well, the Bible says this, blah, 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 blah. And the Bible says this, blah, 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 blah. And therefore, because of this, you should believe. And my response is always like, well, obviously, I don't believe that the Bible is reliable. I don't believe that the Bible is God's word. So all those words you just wrote down don't really mean anything to me. I find that quite often people are quite confused when I say this because they've been taught the Bible is true. And that's really the end of the story. And so they've never actually tried to prove the reliability of the Bible. I have. I dove into that for years. And I talk about it in my last video if you want to hear more. But I came to the conclusion that I'm just not convinced that this is reliable. Could it be reliable? Yes, it could be. It's possible, but at this point I feel like it's probably unlikely that it's reliable. So when you come along and then quote scripture at me that I already think is written by a bunch of people, not God, that doesn't prove anything to me. So if we're going to play that game of using the Bible to prove God, to prove the beliefs are real, to prove that the, the whole system of that particular belief system is logical and makes sense, the first thing we have to do is prove that the Bible is true. So now when people send me these types of messages using the Bible as reasons, it's, it's basically a circular argument. I say, okay, well, let's assume for a second that I don't believe the, the Bible is reliable. What would you say to me? What, what proof or evidence do you have that says the Bible is reliable in the first place? I would say that 99% of Christians have no idea how to answer that question. So if you are a Christian, I would encourage you to go research that. The problem is, is that you might find that there's not really great evidence. And that's what I did. I always thought the Bible was reliable. Of course I did, right? And then when I started to research this stuff, I started to realize that, can I believe that if there was a God who invented physics and biology and all these logical systems in the world, that this is the method that he would use to transfer truth down to his intentionally flawed creations? And I had to say no to that question. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't follow what I see about the universe and the logicalness and the rationale. And why would God punish people that required evidence and reward people that were gullible. And that's kind of the way I see it now. If you're a bit of a skeptical person and you need some proof, you are punished by this logical God. But if you are extremely gullible, or let's say you're just really unintelligent and you, you don't have the capacity to understand logic and reason, I'm just, let's say you're at the low end of the IQ spectrum. Now you're more likely to accept this illogical explanation, would I expect a logical God to do that? And I have to say no. So the last one I'm gonna talk about here is the moral argument. And this one comes up quite a bit. It's basically the assumption that without God, human beings couldn't have morals. 
So the formal version of this argument is, I'll just read it here. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Objective moral values exist, therefore God exists. So right off the bat, I'll just say this is another example of an appeal to ignorance fallacy. It's basically saying that, you know, we have these morals. We don't have a good explanation of why we have these morals. Therefore, God must have given us the morals. And the reality is, is that there's all kinds of natural reasons why human beings are moral. And I've talked about this in other videos, but I'll just briefly, you know, give one possible explanation of why human beings have these built-in morals. And it's the same reason why all species on Earth, all the different animals, seem to have these sort of built-in laws that they follow. The reality is, is that natural selection creates unique species. It's sort of like, you know, at one point, we only had like, let's say, wolves. And then over time, it doesn't even take that long. Over the, you can create a new dog breed in a relatively short period of time. We've bred all these various traits into all these different dogs, and now we have all these different dog breeds. We have everything from like Chihuahuas up to like St. Bernard's, right? Probably all coming back from a similar ancestor. The point is, is that many of these dog breeds have very specific traits. Some are aggressive by nature. Some of them are very playful by nature, and some of them are very trainable and obedient. Other ones are sort of natural born like sheep herders and other ones are guard dogs or whatever. The point is that there's all these different traits, right, that come through the selection process, the genetic selection process. And with human beings, it is very obvious if you look back in history that community-driven individuals survive better. If you're in a group, like a little tribe, you know, back in hunter-gatherer times. If you lived in a tribe, you had a better chance of surviving than if you were just like this lone wolf wandering the plains by yourself. You're probably going to die. You're probably not going to pass on your genetic material. So the people that actually end up reproducing and passing their genetic material on are the people who live in these communities. And these ideas are passed on. It's this innate thing inside of us that respect the group right? Care about what people think. And that's why it's so hard for us to escape that these days. We're all so worried about what people think because at our core, I think we're just obsessed with fitting in to the community. Genetics and natural selection that takes place among individuals to create this genetic person that I am right now, I'm going to have all kinds of built-in behaviors, and a lot of those behaviors are going to value group dynamics. It's going to protect other people within my tribe. All these things that Christians might call morals. I mean, it's just one possible explanation, but to me, there are explanations. And to jump ahead to this massive conclusion that the only way we could have morals is through you know, a supernatural being creating them, it's basically stone age thinking, unfortunately. Like if it was 400 BC right now, and we had no idea what natural selection meant, we, we have no idea what genes meant. Why, why, does, why does a Bob here have a kid and it kind of looks like Bob, right? Nobody really knew why that was happening. And all of our religious texts come from these times. And so it's no wonder that a lot of the ideas in these texts are not current. Which is another, another thing, if it was real, 
why wouldn't it be timeless? Why do we have verses that basically support slavery and support the fact that men are supposed to be ruling over women and women, like, basically be quiet, respect your husband? If God wrote those texts, why wouldn't he condemn slavery? Why wouldn't he put a Ten Commandment, thou shall not have slaves? It's because back then, it was fully acceptable to have slaves. And nobody would have thought that in today's age, it would be horrible to own a slave. If God wrote those texts, why wouldn't he know that and just say that right from the beginning? There's a lot of things like that I could say. Anyway, thanks for checking out the video. I hope I didn't piss too many people off with this video. If you made it this far, congratulations, because I think the reality is most people that commented on my Why I Left Christianity video, they didn't even really watch the video. So if you actually watch to the very end, leave me a comment and just say, you know, I watched to the end, and then and tell me what you thought. Or, you know, if there's anything else that you've seen, what are, what are some other arguments that you see a lot? And I guess I don't want this to be a negative judgmental thing towards religious people. That's my main takeaway. What I really want it to be is an encouragement to people that are trying to, you know, explain their beliefs, trying to prove their beliefs. If you were using any of these arguments, maybe rethink your argument a little bit. Maybe try to rethink it, rephrase it in such a way that, you know, you're not, you're not using logical fallacies. Anyway, guys, thanks for making it this far in the video. Throw me a like on the video if you made it this far. Feel free to send me an audio question. I'll put the link in the description below. Otherwise, I hope you have a great day. Talk to you later.